Good morning. Welcome to Parkway Church. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible open to uh, 1 Corinthians, as we just read, we will be in chapter 10, verses uh, 14 uh, through 22. And as you turn there, I want to make sure that everyone is awake. So we're going to play a, a bit of a game. I'm going to name a time or a place, and I want you to tell me whether you think it would be appropriate or inappropriate for you to eat a full meal, not just a snack, some chips or something like that, but a full meal in that time or place. Make sense? I'll mention a time or place. You say whether or not you think it would be appropriate or inappropriate to eat a meal then and there. For example, if I said uh, around a dinner table at Thanksgiving, you would say it's perfectly appropriate. All right, But if I said you're a doctor in the midst of performing an open heart surgery, you would say... Also appropriate. No, that's inappropriate. All right. Okay. So here we go. I'm going to give some examples. All right. During a job interview. Inappropriate, right? Ray Ray Romano did it on a cameo in the office, but uh, probably not appropriate. What about while driving your car? Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't want to condemn yourself and, uh, all right, it kind of depends also, right? You, you know, if you're eating a Whataburger or something like that, that's okay. If you have a steak and a potato and a glass of wine, that's probably uh, quite inappropriate. What about at a restaurant? Appropriate, right? In a college classroom. When I was in high school, they promised you could eat. Like, that was the promise for me was when you go to college, you can eat, you can wear whatever you want. I get there and they're like, you can't eat in here. Uh, Okay, Uh, what about while your wife is giving birth? All right, anyone argue that is terribly appropriate? Um, What about uh, at a funeral? Not the reception afterwards, but during the funeral. Uh, What about while preaching? For example, could I just be enjoying a, I don't know, a warm bowl of clam chowder up here? You know, probably wearing some sort of turtleneck or something like that. Appropriate, inappropriate? Inappropriate. All right. Watching TV or movie at, a home, at home? Appropriate. What about around a campfire in the woods? Most of us will say it's appropriate unless you're like Zach and you hate camping or something like that. Now, in most of these, we agree. There were a couple where we maybe didn't agree. We might disagree on a few of the fringe examples. But we all agree that there are certain contexts or certain times and places in which it's appropriate to eat and there's others in which it's inappropriate. Here's why I mentioned this. Because in chapters 8 through 10, 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul is going to be talking about food sacrificed to idols. That's the overarching context of our passage this morning. And Paul has said already, and he will continue to say, uh, in, especially in our text next week, that there, is some context, there are some contexts in which it's appropriate to eat that food that's been sacrificed to idols. And then in other contexts, at other times, it's inappropriate. Paul has already agreed with the Corinthians that idols don't represent real gods. The gods of the, uh, the Romans, the gods of the Greeks, the gods of Hindus, the, gods of, uh, the god of, of, of Islam, the, the gods that all of those peoples worship, they aren't real gods. So they don't own that food that's offered to them. That food belongs to the true God. So any food that's offered to idols is just food. Right? The meat isn't tainted. It isn't polluted. So you can eat it. But at the same time, on the other hand, there is a sense in which uh, it's more than food, and therefore in certain contexts you shouldn't eat it. All right? That might sound super confusing, uh, but it's not. Uh, and so let me give you uh, some 
of what we see in the text, uh, let me sum up the context in which it is and isn't appropriate. For example, if you were to go to the temple and you were to actually offer a sacrifice to an idol, is that appropriate or inappropriate? It's inappropriate. You can't eat that meat. Why not? Because you're actually engaging in idolatry. Or likewise, if you go to a feast in honor of some god where they're serving meat that's been sacrificed to idols as a celebration of some false god, that's inappropriate. But what about if you go to the meat market in Corinth? Although the meat has probably been sacrificed to idols, what would Paul say? It's appropriate. You can eat that. Or if you go to a friend's house and they just serve you meat and you don't know whether or not that meat was sacrificed to idols, Paul says it's okay. You're free to eat that. Uh, at uh, you're, you're free to eat that particular uh, meat. But if you're at a friend's house and they say, "Hey, here's some demon meat," and Paul would say, "Don't eat it." All right, we'll talk about that next week. So there are there are at least two contexts in which it's uh, it's appropriate, and at least two contexts in which it's inappropriate. We'll talk more about that next week. But this morning. Paul's going to supplement this argument he's making, been making in chapters 8 through 10 by demonstrating that sometimes eating is more than just eating. Sometimes eating is itself an act of worship. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into the text together. I'd first ask that you would uh, pray for yourself, that the Lord would give you uh, understanding, not only understanding, but also uh, affection and a desire to to figure out how to apply this weird text about food sacrifice to idols and so forth uh, to your own life. And then would you pray that for others as well? The Lord would give us collectively, corporately, uh, a desire to heed and to, to hear his word. And then lastly, for me, that I would be uh, faithful to the text. So, Father, we're grateful for uh, this word this morning and confess that, uh, that though, uh, at least on the surface, it seems like a text that's uh, going to be difficult for us to apply to our own lives, uh, I pray that you would uh, help us to see that it's not actually all that difficult and that... Uh, Though the idols that, uh, that we struggle with aren't as uh, tangible or manifest or uh, visible as uh, those of the, uh, the Corinthians, that uh, nonetheless uh, we uh, have this same uh, affliction and temptation and uh, that we would be those who would uh, heed your word to flee from idolatry and flee toward you and the sufficiency of your son. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, let's look at verse 14. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. All right, last week's text, we ended with this, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Notice that word, escape, that you may be able to endure it. So in our text today... Paul continues with this idea of escape as he tells the Corinthians to flee. 
This word flee in the, in the Greek is the word fugete, from which we get the word fugitive, all right? Imagine a fugitive who's fleeing from authorities, so attempting to uh, escape from the authorities, like Harrison Ford fleeing, trying to elude Tommy Lee Jones and the fugitive or something. That's kind of the idea here. Likewise, we are to flee from idolatry, to escape uh, from it. Now, this was a particular concern in Corinth, given the historical and cultural context of the Roman Empire. Right, in the Roman Empire, idolatry was everywhere. It was ubiquitous. It was woven into the social structure, the very fabric of the culture. Roman theology, uh, in general, was this kaleidoscope. All right? They worshipped this pantheon of gods. The empire... They would conquer a a new area, and then what they would do is in order to appease the people of that area, they would simply adopt the gods uh, of that uh, area, and they would then add them to their list of acceptable gods. They didn't want to slight anyone's gods, which is why Paul is going to mention in uh, Acts 17, he's going to mention that there's an altar in uh, the city of Athens. There's an altar to, quote, the unknown God, right? Just in case they left anyone out, they want to cover all of their bases. And, uh, and their worship system was all quite utilitarian. Which God is going to help me get better crops, or a bit of rain, or have a child, or win a battle, or have a safe journey, or whatever it might be. So they kind of thought there's safety in numbers, right? Just worship as many gods as possible to increase your chances of success. The more, the merrier. Especially because those gods didn't seem to, uh, to mind sharing a stage with these other gods. They didn't seem to mind the fact that you would worship Zeus one day and Poseidon the next and Asclepius the next or whoever uh, it, uh, it might be. So uh, Christianity, though, was quite different from that, right? It involved this complete disassociation from these other so-called deities, Right? Christianity didn't allow the Corinthians, or indeed it doesn't allow us, to simply add Christ to your list of gods. You have Zeus, you have Poseidon, you have Thor, and then you have Jesus as well. It means that you throw away the list. There are no other gods. Right? There's one and only one God who eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. All other so-called gods are not gods. They're lowercase gods. All right? They're false gods, they're imitators, they're pretenders, they're usurpers. So this is why Christians will be persecuted by the Roman Empire. And one of the accusations against them, among other things, is that Christians are atheists. Why are they called atheists? Well, because they don't worship the pantheon of gods. They worship one god. And that exclusivism was intolerable in the Roman Empire, as it's often seen as intolerable uh, today, So idolatry was this daily temptation for the Corinthians, right? They would wake up in the morning, they would go out, it's woven into the social fabric, they would see the temples, they would order meat, whatever it might be, it was everywhere around them, right? Which is why last week we read that God provides a way of escape from temptation, because this temptation was a daily uh, experience for them. And why we read last week that no temptation has overtaken us that isn't common to man. Now, one of the challenges of this text that we're looking at today, one of the challenges of understanding our text today is that we don't live in a context in which our lives revolve around these physical expressions of idolatry, right? We aren't surrounded by temples 
the food that we buy at you know, Tom Thumb or something probably wasn't sacrificed to Poseidon or Artemis. So this text might seem archaic. It might seem irrelevant, but it's not. In fact, idolatry is no less pre- uh, prevalent today. It's just more subtle. We've talked about this over the past couple of weeks, that as Calvin said, our hearts are these perpetual forges of idols. That's what our hearts do. In in their sin, they continually create other idols. But our idolatry, unlike the idolatry that would have been the struggle for the Corinthians, by and large, uh, our idolatry is camouflaged. Our idols aren't metal, they're mental. They're not products of the hands, they're products of our heads and of our hearts. They're not external, they're internal. That's why the past couple of weeks we've worked to not only define idolatry, But we've also given you lists of questions to help you identify the idols in your life. I doubt many of you struggle with the temptation to actually bow down to an actual statue in worship. So we need help if we're going to diagnose our idolatry. So we've done that. And we've defined idolatry. One of the things we've said is we need to understand what idolatry is and what it isn't. If we're going to flee from it, we need to know what it actually is. Is And one of the things that we've said over the past couple of weeks is, is that it isn't simply loving something. That's kind of a common evangelical idea today. We've talked about uh, that. Anything that you love might be an idol, right? So if I say I love my wife, Casey, someone could come along and say, well, then you have an idolatry of your wife or whatever it might be. Or I love being a pastor. And so someone might say, well, then you idolize ministry. None of that is what idolatry actually is. Idolatry isn't loving something. It's loving something disproportionately. It's it's having a disordered desire. It's loving something more than or in the place of God. It's either worshiping the wrong God or worshiping the right God in the wrong way. There is never a time that I should come to you and say, I love my wife a lot, and you should say, you should love her a little less. Right? That's not the proper response, right? Or that I should say, I really love my job. And you say, you should love that a little bit less, right? I should love those as much as possible. To the utmost degree that I possibly can, I should absolutely love Casey. I should love my kids. I should love ministry. I should love all of those sorts of things. I should never lower my love of good gifts, but rather I should raise my love of God whenever those things have circumvented it or subverted it. Idolatry is where you exalt the gift over the giver. So the proper response is not to lower your love for the gift, it's to raise your love for the giver. And how can we identify the idols that we have in our hearts, given that most of the idols that we uh, worship today aren't these um, you know, uh, external realities, they're these internal things. Over the past couple of weeks, we've given you a list of questions. What do you worry about the most? What have you failed at? Or if you lost, would cause you to not want to live? Uh, You know, what do you use to comfort yourself when things are difficult? What preoccupies your thoughts and your daydreams and so forth? What makes you feel the most self-worth? What do you want to make sure that people know about you fairly early on? What's the first thing that you talk about when you talk to others? What uh, What prayer, if unanswered, would make you seriously think about turning away from God? What do you have a tendency to lie about? What is the one thing that if it were different, you think your life would be perfect? And those diagnostic questions that we've asked over the past couple of weeks, they're intended to work together. It's kind of like going to a doctor 
If you want to diagnose if you have a disease, you need to identify all of these symptoms. You might have symptoms. You might not actually have the disease. But the more symptoms that you have of one underlying disease, the more likely you are to have it. So use these diagnostic questions that we've given you over the past couple of weeks like that. Where you see the same thing pop up as you answer those questions, the same answer to a number of questions is the same thing, that's probably an indication that there's an idol that's lurking underneath, that you need to mortify that you need to put to death, or to use the language of this text, that you need to flee. Now, what's Paul's point in this context? Well, the point that he's making is that while food sacrificed to idols, in and of itself, is clean, it's neutral, it's adiaphora, it's kosher, attending idol feasts, or actually offering sacrifices to idol, is actual idolatry, no matter what your justification is. There is no justification for actually engaging in idolatry. Eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols, incidentally, is okay. But offering sacrifices to idols or participating in these celebratory feasts to idols is not okay. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. Or at least they were in danger of doing. They are saying, we are so free in Christ. We've been so inoculated by the gospel that we can actually offer sacrifices And we're not partaking of idolatry. It doesn't mean anything to us. So now we've seen kind of the concern shift in Paul's language a little bit. When Paul Paul first began to give some boundaries for eating meat sacrificed to idols, uh, way back in chapter 8, the original concern was that you might damage others in the process. He says, don't cause your brother to stumble. right? Don't cause them to actually sin. But now we see that there is not only... That danger, but there's another danger, and that is self-destruction. So we saw at the beginning of chapter 10, don't be like Israel, who forsook God by engaging in idolatry. Let's keep going. Verse 15, I speak as a sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. Now I think there's a bit of irony uh, here, I think he's being a little bit sarcastic in this verse, given that Paul's kind of overarching rebuke of the Corinthians throughout the book is that they're actually not sensible. They're not wise. Instead, they're pursuing worldly wisdom rather than the wisdom of God. That's one of the overarching themes of the book. Nevertheless, Paul is here treating them as Christians, and therefore, he says, you should be able to think about uh, spiritual things in a way that is sensible, in a way that is wise, in a way that is biblical. And what follows are going to be these seven rhetorical questions that Paul will ask to kind of move the argument along, to make the point that he is trying to make. If the Corinthians are going to do what he says, which is to judge for yourselves what I say, then they, or we by extension, need to answer these seven questions. And these seven questions, they're again, they're rhetorical. The answer to each one should be obvious if you're thinking biblically. So let's look at the first two questions. We see them in verses 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So in order to support uh, his point that eating meat sacrificed to idols can in some context be a form of idolatry, Paul is going to bring in this analogy. And that analogy is the Lord's Supper or Communion. 
something we'll talk about more in depth as we get into chapter uh, 11. But here, he's introducing it just as an analogy. And that analogy is going to demonstrate the point that sometimes a meal is more than a meal. I learned this uh, in, uh, in Japan a decade ago. I was uh, eating at a re- restaurant with uh, this Japanese host who was being very gracious, taking me out to, to eat at a, a nice restaurant. And, uh, and we were eating yakitori, which means grilled bird. Thankfully, it wasn't a pigeon or something like that. It was chicken. And, uh, and so uh, this chicken served on skewers or kebabs. And, uh, and so he's, uh, we're eating it, and he saves this final piece, this piece of honor for me. And he says that he would be honored if I would eat it. He had saved it just for me. So I happily obliged. I was very grateful. At least I was grateful until I actually put it in my mouth. And as soon as I bit down on it, I realized something's wrong. And at that same moment, the host said, that's the best part. It's the heart. Now, apparently, chicken hearts are actually supposed to be delicacies. They're often tender. But this one, for whatever reason, was absolutely not. It was like chewing leather. All right, there was no way I could get it down. You may or may not know this about me, but I'm a texture guy. I have a very strong gag reflex. <laughs> Ask the staff. I just dry heave in, in random staff meetings or whatever. I can't do fat. I can't do gristle, those kinds of things. So the chances I knew of me actually getting this chicken into my stomach were about 0%. All right? and, uh, and so I'm wondering now, I'm in this conundrum. I'm thinking, what is more offensive in this context, this this culture of honor and shame where this guy has done this great uh, gift to me, he's given me this this chicken heart, which is actually more offensive, to make a scene by either uh, spitting it out or by spitting it up, right? Those are my two options. And I chose uh, to do what I thought was better. I chose to spit it out. But I didn't want to offend my host, so I just kind of waited until he was looking elsewhere, and then I spit it in my napkin. Then I didn't know what to do with the napkin, so I just threw it under the table. (laughs) Not my best moment of international etiquette, but I really feel bad for the waiter that later found that treasure. Uh, Now, to this day, I don't know. I don't know what the right thing to do. If anyone here is... you know, Japanophile or something like that, tell me. Maybe I should have just apologized profusely instead of hiding it. Maybe I should have just thrown up. I don't know. Uh, But the reason that it was such a big deal is because that meat represented more than just a meal, right? Especially in that culture, in that context, it represented honor and relationship and so forth. And that's what uh, Paul is kind of saying about the Lord's Supper, right? The bread isn't just bread. The wine isn't just wine. There's more to that that's happening in that meal. Now, to un- understand this, we need to, to, to do a little bit of theology. We, we actually uh, talked about this quite a bit uh, in theological equipping class a couple of years ago when we talked about various historical views of, uh, of communion, also known as uh, the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. And one of the things we talked about is within the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Eucharist or communion formed around these two main ideas. Right? There were these incidental things like the fact that they didn't give wine to the normal laity because they didn't want to spill the blood of Christ. And, you know, you lay people always spilling your wine. But uh, there are these incidental things where there were two main theological ideas that kind of uh, formed the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Eucharist. The first one was that what happens there is that during the Mass, the Lord's Supper, during communion, that that was an actual enduring sacrifice. That each time communion is offered, Christ is re-sacrificed by the priest. 
The second idea, the second theological conviction, was that Christ's presence in communion was explained by the doctrine of transubstantiation. What is transubstantiation? Well, that's built upon the philosophy of guys like Aristotle, who distinguished a thing itself, what he called the substance, from what may be said incidentally about that thing, what are called the accidents. Now, that's confusing. Let me apply that within the context. As applied to communion, transubstantiation is the idea that though the accidents of bread, and by accidents, I mean things like the taste, the feel, the smell, the look of the bread or the wine. Though the accidents of the elements remain the same, the underlying substance changes from bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ when the priest consecrates it. So the bread and wine actually transform. That's why it's called transubstantiation. The substance transes, it changes into the body and blood of Christ. It may look, it may taste, it may smell, it may feel like bread and wine, but it's actually substantially not bread and wine. It is the body and blood of Christ. Now, all the reformers are going to reject the idea that communion was this ongoing sacrifice, right? They're going to reject that. And they're also going to all reject transubstantiation, but they didn't really agree on a theory to replace it. In fact, three different views emerged from the Reformation, each of them being quite uh, distinct. Luther's view is the closest to transubstantiation. Luther holds to a view that's called consubstantiation, which is the idea that the bread and wine don't transform. They don't actually transform into the body and blood of Christ, but that the physical body and blood of Christ are nevertheless present along with the substance of the bread and the wine. So, so, the, so the substance of Christ's body and blood and the substance of the bread and wine are all present at the same time. It doesn't change They're there simultaneously. The actual blood and body are there, but they're in, they're under, they're around, they're with the elements. Not instead of the bread and wine, but in addition to them. That was Luther's view. Zwingli, on the other hand, he swung the pendulum all the way to the other end. And he held to the idea of a memorial or symbolic view of the supper. He says that the the Lord's Supper is merely symbolic. It's merely memorial. It's just an act of remembrance as we do this in remembrance of Christ. So the elements are mere symbols of this reality that Christ's body was broken and his blood was spilled for us. Now, if you grew up in a Baptist or you grew up in a non-denominational context, uh, uh, this is probably the view that you most encountered growing up. And yet I don't think it's actually the best and most biblical view. I think it makes an important contribution It's helpful. It distinguishes some things from the Roman Catholic view and some things from the Lutheran view. But at the same time, it's a bit reductionistic. It kind of reduces communion down uh, rather than allowing its full glory to shine forth. So I think a much better view was articulated by a guy named John Calvin. Calvin is going to at some points agree with Luther and at some points agree with Zwingli. With Zwingli, he held that Christ's actual physical body was in heaven. It's not in the elements. And it's faith which fuels the sacrament. But with Luther, he agreed that something more than just a symbol is taking place. And that communion isn't so much our gift to God as it is God's gift to us. As God gives physical food to his people in bread and wine, so he gives spiritual food to his people through the gospel of his son. So when we partake of the meal, we aren't actually eating the physical body and blood of Christ, contra Luther and the Catholics. But neither is it a mere symbol, contra Zwingli. Instead, there's this real spiritual eating, this real spiritual drinking that takes place 
by the Spirit. In other words, communion symbolizes this reality of union with Christ. Notice the word uh, union in communion. Communion is about the fact that we've been united to Christ. How does communion communicate that to us? Well, it's a bit of a mystery. Calvin writes, It is a mystery of Christ's secret union with the devout, which is by nature incomprehensible. If anybody should ask me how this communion takes place, I am not ashamed to confess that it is a secret too lofty for either my mind to comprehend or my words to declare. And to speak more plainly, I rather experience than understand it. Now, I bring all of this theology up because it relates to Paul's argument here in 1 Corinthians. Notice the language that Paul uses when he compares idolatry and the Lord's Supper. Notice the language that he uses of participation. When we drink of the cup, when we eat of the bread, we don't merely remember, we participate. We participate in what? We participate in the body and blood of Christ. Not physically, all right? But spiritually, really, nonetheless. In other words, the meal meal isn't merely a symbol. There is this real participation that takes place. We partake of the body and blood of Christ. Again, not physically, but spiritually, really, truly, mysteriously. But notice what else Paul says here. He says, not only do I partake or participate in Christ, but also of each other. There's both this vertical and also this horizontal, uh, horizontal aspect of communion. We're communing with Christ, but we're also communing with each other. That's the meaning, he says, of the one cup and the one loaf that was in- instituted by Christ. It was instituted to demonstrate this reality that there is one body. The oneness symbolizes unity. So in communion... We experience not only communion with uh, Christ, but also communion with each other. What do we call that? Community. Right? We'll talk about uh, that more whenever we, uh, we participate uh, or partake of communion uh, in a bit. Now, Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians uh, 10 isn't to give this full theology of communion. Right? In chapter 11, we're going to get a little bit more uh, of that. But remember, the Lord's Supper here in chapter 10 is just used as an analogy to make a point about eating food sacrificed to idols. So how does what he says about uh, uh, the Lord's Supper make a point as it relates to idolatry? Well, the same way that communion is going to involve a union with God, so offering sacrifices to idols or participating in these celebratory meals with food sacrificed to idols involves a union with the one to whom the sacrifice is made. That's his point. In other words, by participating in these pagan ceremonies, the Corinthians were accessories to the sacrificial act. And thus they are accessories to idolatry. A couple of verses back, we, uh, we started this sermon with a call to flee, fugete, right? That word is used one other time in 1 Corinthians. We've actually seen it before way back in chapter 6, verse 18, which says flee from sexual immorality. In using the same language here, flee from sexual immorality, flee idolatry, the only two places where that word is used in 1 Corinthians, I think that Paul actually intends for us to see a connection between the argument of chapter 6 and that of chapter 10. How so? Well, because food and sex are these gifts which are often used throughout Scripture as analogies for worship. Zach talked in particular about uh, the gift and distortion of sex last week, but I'll kind of summarize that. You see throughout Scripture that marriage is often used as a metaphor for the worship of God. Right? What are we called 
Not only the body of Christ, but what else? The bride of Christ, all right? And what's our future hope? What's uh, Revelation talk about this great feast is going to be what? The marriage supper or the wedding feast of the Lamb or whatever uh, it might be. And, uh, and, and then we see throughout Scripture that when there is a perversion of sexuality, there's also a perversion of worship or vice versa. When there is a perversion of worship, there is a perversion of, uh, of sexuality. So sexual immorality is often compared, especially in the prophetic literature, to idolatry. What is the constant uh, rebuke of the prophets toward Israel? He, calls, he, he says that they're playing the harlot, that they're engaging in whoredom. This is the language of, uh, of the Scripture. In the same way that marriage creates this sexual union that, that, that should prohibit any and all other unions, so Paul says the Lord's Supper represents a union that should prohibit any and all other unions. You see, especially in the ancient world, people understood that meals incurred obligations, right? You invite someone over to dinner at your house, and they now owe you. That was called a, that was the, the system that's known as patronage within the Roman Empire, right? Especially given this ubiquitous patronage system of the Roman culture, the, the Corinthians would have understood that you couldn't accept an invitation to eat with your patron while at the same time, accepting an invitation from that patron's bitter rival without basically switching patrons. Otherwise, you would infuriate, you would dishonor your patron. Well, that's what Paul says here concerning uh, sacrifices to idols or eating in one of these celebratory dinners. That's what it would be like. You've eaten the Lord's Supper, you've honored him as your patron, and now you've turned around? And you, you've eaten a celebratory feast in honor of his rival? That doesn't work. Let's keep going. Verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So now we move from talking uh, about the Lord's Supper back to ancient Israel. Again, if you remember way back in the beginning of chapter 10, he began talking about uh, Israel uh, and gave that as an analogy or uh, example. And there is some debate about who Paul is talking about here in verse 18. Right, there's two schools of thought. There's two camps. Is he talking about the sacrifices that were regularly offered in the temple? So those who eat the sacrifices, uh, uh, are those sacrifices the, the kind of normal sacrifices that took place in Israel uh, in the temple? Or, on the other hand, is he talking about different types of sacrifices? Is he talking in particular about Israel's idolatrous sacrifices in the wilderness. Now, either one works theologically. Both of them make the point that he's trying to, uh, to make. If you eat the sacrifices in the temple, then you're participants in the altar. Right? Some sacrifices were eaten by the entire community. Others were eaten just by the priests. Regardless, to eat was to kind of participate in this cultic act of sacrifice. And it's also true that those who offered sacrifices in the wilderness... Uh, and then eight uh, of those sacrifices were participants in idolatry. So either one works theologically, but I think he actually means the latter based on the context for a few reasons. In other words, I think he's not just talking about the normal sacrifices that would have been offered in uh, Israel's temple, but rather I think he's talking in particular about the idolatrous sacrifices that Israel offered in the wilderness. Here are a few reasons. Again, at the end of the day, if you disagree with me, the point of the passage uh, is the same. But here are a few reasons that I think he's talking about these evil, idolatrous sacrifices. First, 
the phrase there it's, uh, in the ESV as people of Israel is literally Israel according to the flesh. And when you see language like that, that typically carries not a neutral or positive connotation. It's typically a negative connotation, all right? Paul uses the word flesh not in the same way that like John uses where the word became flesh, just meaning body, substantial. Uh, Paul uses it typically to refer to the sinful sort of uh, uh, dominion of, uh, uh, that mankind is, uh, is under. So that's the first reason. The second reason, the immediate context, right? The beginning of chapter 10 the use of Israel as an analogy was decidedly negative. And what was the focus of the beginning of chapter 10? Israel's idolatry. Look at chapter 10, verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. That's Israel. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Notice the reference to eating and drinking there. So I think Paul is still playing off of that. And then finally, another reason that I think that Paul is is talking about idolatrous sacrifices here. Is I, th- he's, I think he's playing on the language of the Old Testament. There's a number of places where this comes up, but I think one of the strongest is uh, Deuteronomy 32. Uh, one of the things we haven't got to talk about as much, but it would just be an interesting thing for you if you're just a, a nerd and like to study, which I would commend. But uh, Deuteronomy 32 is kind of an echo in the background of much of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. So Deuteronomy 32, verse 17 talking about the experience of Israel. It says they sacrificed to demons that were not gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. All right? So I think Paul's talking about that experience. So I don't think he's talking about these good sacrifices offered in the temple, but rather these improper sacrifices offered in the wilderness, regardless the point is the same. And that point is that the eating of the sacrifice was not just an addendum to worship. It was not just this extraneous thing added on. It was not just this subsequent activity that's unrelated to the act of worship. You do the worship and then you go eat. No, he says it's an actual part of the worship. It's an inherent part of the worship. By eating and drinking, they are worshiping. That's a worshipful act. That's why at the end of 1 Corinthians, it will talk about whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Similar to the way that the Lord's Supper in our worship service isn't just an addendum. It's an essential element to it, right? We would not encourage you to leave the moment I say amen in my prayer before we start communion. That is a part of the service, all right? Eating the sacrifice was itself an aspect of worship. Now, at this point, Paul is going to anticipate a bit of an objection, If you've been paying attention very closely throughout chapters 8, 9, and 10, you might have the same objection that uh, he anticipates. And that objection is, if idols are nothing, an idol has no existence. If idols are nothing, then no real worship is taking place, right? If there's no actual God behind that idol, then what does it matter if we offer sacrifices to idols? We're not supposed to offer sacrifices to false gods, but those idols are nothing. Those gods are nothing. Those idols don't exist, so why does it matter if we offer sacrifices to them? Paul anticipates this and talks about it in uh, verses 19 through 20. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So way back in chapter 8, Paul had already agreed with the Corinthians in saying... 
verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. And he's not contradicting this now. But how can it be true to say that an idol has no existence and yet also say when you participate in idolatry, you are actually worshiping something? That might seem like a contradiction. That might seem inconsistent. And Paul's answer is that though the idol itself is deaf, it's dumb, it's impotent, that's the language of the prophets uh, oftentimes regard, regarding idols, though the idol itself is deaf and dumb and, and impotent, though the object behind the idol isn't a god, nevertheless there is still this profound reality and power behind that idol. He says you're worshiping something, not the god, not a god, but a demon. So he says, to sacrifice to an idol is a sacrifice to a demon, whether you intend that or not. In other words, Paul's giving this, 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 another nuance to the idea of idolatry. When we think of idolatry, we tend to think of very explicit forms of idolatry. I intend to offer a sacrifice to this particular God as a form of worship. That's very explicit. My intention is to worship this particular God, so I offer this particular sacrifice to this particular statue. But that's not the only type of idolatry. Instead, there is also this implicit form of idolatry whereby someone knowingly partakes of meals where sacrifices are made, and that participation in the meal implies our participation in the sacrifice itself. It's kind of like being an accessory to a crime. All right, imagine... The, uh, the context of someone stealing a credit card and using it to purchase something, all right? Appropriate, inappropriate. I just heard, all right? Hopefully you know stealing credit cards is wrong, and you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't do that. That's inappropriate, all right? But what if you work in a retail establishment, and someone uses that credit card to purchase something, all right? Are you an accessory? Well, it kind of depends, there's a world of difference between accepting that uh, credit card uh, that you don't know was stolen and accepting that card if the person hands it to you and says, run this card. It's not mine. I stole it. All right? Stealing a card is wrong. That's explicit idolatry. But so is knowingly allowing it to be used. That's this implicit form of idolatry. So the real problem for Paul throughout chapters 8 through 10 the real problem for Paul isn't food or drink. That's easy. He said before, that food isn't tainted. It's not polluted. You can eat it. The real problem isn't the food or the drink. The real problem is the social significance, the connotation of eating or drinking, especially in contexts that are condoning or celebrating pagan offerings or pagan gods. And verse 21 is going to provide a bit of application for us. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So we've got to uh, talk about the word cannot there. This past week, I flew back from a vacation in Colorado, which is awesome. I missed you guys. I wasn't here for two weeks. First time I've missed two weeks in a row. But uh, it was awesome to be in Colorado. But flying with my two-year-old boy, it was less awesome. It was a bit challenging. You know, for all the reasons that are always normal with flying with uh, two-year-olds, but especially now in our context, because I had to try to reason with my two-year-old son to keep his mask on during the flight. 
Not because I'm worried about him getting COVID, because I don't want to get tased by an air marshal, right? And I've seen enough videos on YouTube where that's what they do to you. So I, keep tell, I would tell him, you can't take off your mask. And his response would be, I guess I can. Physically, I'm able to do it. Um, and I don't know if I can spank a kid on a uh, flight, because also I don't want to get tased by an air marshal. So it was a weird situation for me. In other words, sometimes cannot means that you don't have the physical, actual ability to do something, right? I can't fly or whatever it might be. But rather that you can't do something without consequences, right? Imagine that I said, now that you're married, you can't flirt, you can't date with someone that's not your spouse. What I mean by that, it's not a logical impossibility. It's not even a physical impossibility. You certainly have the physical ability to flirt with whoever you want, all right? But I, I mean that you can't do it if you want your marriage to work, right? That's what Paul is meaning here whenever he says cannot. Partaking of these celebratory meals and communion represents this relational impossibility. The cup of the Lord and the cup of demons don't mix, at least not without consequences that we'll talk about in verse 22. The point uh, uh, that Paul's making here is you can't dismiss these celebratory meals, these meals offered in... Uh, in celebration of these false gods. You can't dismiss these celebratory meals as these casual, meaningless social events any more that you, than you could dismiss this careless sexual act with a prostitute as some sort of casual, meaningless tryst. How would that work for your spouse if you were said, yeah, I, I had an encounter with a prostitute, but it didn't mean anything. That's not going to go well. That's what the Corinthians are doing here, right? The point that Paul's making is that fellowship with Jesus in the supper is a real fellowship. It's a real participation, a real communion with both the Lord and the Lord's people. Likewise, the fellowship in the idol temple is a real fellowship with the, 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 the demonic and with those who are under the dominion of that realm. It's not harmless, it's not this no big deal. It's not this casual, meaningless, irrelevant sort of thing. In fact, it's a really big deal. It's demonic. It's idolatrous. And if communion symbolizes union and covenant, and if throughout Scripture breaking of covenant brings judgment, then what? Verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Here's the result of trying to merge the two meals. In the same way that committing adultery would provoke your spouse to jealousy, so committing idolatry provokes the Lord to jealousy. Now, when we think of jealousy, we tend to think of it as a vice, right? When we hear that someone is jealous, we tend to view that as a character flaw in that person. And that's certainly true of some forms of jealousy, right? When I'm jealous that someone else got a promotion that I didn't get, or lives in a nicer house, or drives a nicer truck, or has a nicer office, or a bigger 401k, and then that then leads me to self-pity, or it leads me to resent them, or something like that. That's sin. But there's also this other meaning, historically, to the word jealousy. Jealousy also consists of this idea of maintaining and guarding something that's yours. Right? When you protect your child from being kidnapped, that's jealousy. When you protect your spouse from being abused, that's jealousy. That's a righteous form of jealousy. And it's this latter sense uh, that's the one in which Scripture speaks of the jealousy of God. When we're jealous, 
It's always because of some sort of insecurity or insufficiency in ourselves. That's not the case with God. God is not insufficient. God is perfectly sufficient. He is the definition of sufficient, right? He is perfectly content in his own glory. He lacks nothing. He needs nothing. He is always perfectly glorious. So his jealousy is not like the jealousy that you and I experience. It's not a result of his insufficiency. In fact, jealousy is actually a manifestation of his sufficiency because he is utterly sufficient. Because he's utterly good, he's jealous of anything which would compete with that, which would undermine that. Because any competition is uh, inherently inferior. Imagine you gave your child a choice for dinner. You say, you can eat whatever you want. And they say, I want to go outside. I want to go to the trash can. I want to dig through it. I want to find some leftovers from last week that's been sitting in the sun for the past few days, it's covered in maggots. I want to eat that. All right? Your house is filled with, you know, you have a whole pantry full of food, but they want trash. That's the image of sin. That's what provokes God's jealousy. Remember, we talked about this pantheon of Roman gods and how they were content. Poseidon didn't really care if you worship Zeus and Artemis and all these kinds of other gods, and how God isn't like that. God won't simply be one among many. Why not? Because he knows none of those can actually satisfy. None of those can actually help. This is why scripture often focuses on the fact that idols are deaf and they're blind and they're impotent. They can't do anything for you. So God's jealousy is actually your greatest hope because God is the only one who can help, the only one who can save, the only one who can rescue. So if you think about it, jealousy is this fundamental attribute of God's character. James Montgomery uh, Boyce, he once wrote, rightly understood the idea of jealousy is central to any concept of God. That's why you read about the jealousy of God throughout Scripture. Exodus 20, 4 through 5, you should not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Exodus 34, 14, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Or earlier we read uh, Deuteronomy 32, 17, which says they uh, sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. Remember how I said Deuteronomy 32 is kind of in the background for all of 1 Corinthians uh, 10. Uh, Look at Deuteronomy 32, 21, so just four verses later. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Now, something that's interesting about the way that Scripture talks about the jealousy of God is how it's connected not only to his love, but also to his anger. Notice that here uh, in the Deuteronomy 32 text, all right? He's going to provoke them to anger. He's going to punish his people as a result of this. Or for a better example, look at Deuteronomy 6, 14 through 15. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. God will not be mocked. His jealousy looks like love. For those who run toward him, but it looks like wrath to those who would run away from him. Especially because you can't outrun him. As he ends the text, are we stronger than he? Of course not. 
You can never outrun him. So we began this passage with this call to flee idolatry. So how do we do that? Step one, identify the idols in your life. Uh, I would encourage you, go back, listen uh, to the past couple of sermons uh, a number of times to get those diagnostic questions, think through those. So we've done that, now what? Well, the best way to flee idolatry is not actually by focusing on the idol, but rather by focusing on God. The same way that whenever you want to get sick, the, the solution is not just to study the sickness, but rather to study the cure. When the Bible tells us to run away from something, it's always implying that we run towards something. You can't run away from something without also running toward something. Imagine you're dying of thirst in the midst of an ocean. You're on this lifeboat, whatever it might be. Well, idolatry is kind of like lowering yourself into the ocean and just drinking the salt water. And what's the result of that? You simply exacerbate the problem, right? You don't solve it. You actually end up making it worse. But notice that the solution is not just simply don't drink salt water. That doesn't actually quench your thirst either. You have to instead drink fresh water to live. Well, the same is true with idolatry. By logical necessity, when you run away from something, you reward toward you run toward something else. Therefore, if you flee one idol, but you don't run toward the true God, you're actually just fleeing toward another idol. That's what most of us tend to do. The person that's obsessed with uh, food, they decide they want to get uh, in shape, and so they get in shape, and they start a, you know, Instagram and a fitness blog and all that kind of stuff, and what have they done? They just become obsessed now with body image. Or the person who was obsessed with work, they retire and they become they retire and then they become obsessed with recreation. They become obsessed with travel or obsessed with uh, their four hundred one k or whatever it might be. What good is it to merely trade one idol for another? They're not actually fleeing idolatry then. But the way that we displace this lesser desire, the only way to do it is by replacing it with a greater desire, a lesser lowercase god with a greater uppercase god. In other words, you were to fight fire with, uh, with fire. You're to, 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 to fight one desire with a greater desire. False worship with true worship. So when Christ bids you, as he does, to flee, it's never merely to run away from idols. It's always to run towards something and towards uh, someone who is greater. The only way to flee idolatry is running to the true God. There are a number of ways that you can do that through prayer, you do that through singing. You do that through reading and meditating on Scripture. You do that by gathering together, by confessing your sins together, by engaging in community. And you also do that in communion, to which we'll now turn. First, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, I confess that uh, in some ways this passage is um, absolutely beyond our capacity. That at the end of the day, at the end of our lives, we will not have fully fled idolatry. Because until the resurrection and the return of your son, idolatry will still be a problem of our hearts. And yet, I also know that just because we can never get rid of idolatry as a concept, that we do have the opportunity by your spirit to uh, see great victory in defeating 
individual idols. And so I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would help us to identify some of the idols in our own life that we might flee from them and not merely flee from them to something else that's lesser, but to flee toward you, that we would find that you are sufficient, that you are adequate, that you are all-encompassing, that you are beautiful and lovely and good. I pray these things because you're a good father. You've made provision for us in our idolatry and you've loved us anyway. So I'm grateful for the gospel of your son and it's in his name we pray. Amen.